Right, okay. Tonight, Galatines. No, it's not how you say it. It's Galatians. Uh, but then you can say it backwards. That would be Snaitalag. But uh, anyway. Right, okay. Galatians. Now then, Galatian, unlike some of Paul's other epistles, wasn't a city or a town or anything like that. It was, it was a region. So Paul is here... Uh, writing to a region, and it was a, a province in the Roman Empire, as it as it was then, and uh, it's it's what would now be called Central Turkey. So so Paul's writing to the general area of uh, Central Turkey. Um, he planted various churches um, in that area, and um, on his first missionary journey, we saw this in Acts. He planted churches at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And probably what this is, it's a circular letter. It's written to all the churches, and one church will get it and pass it around. So unlike others which are written to particular people or a particular church, this is written to a geographical area, you know, a bit like a letter to Essex or, you know, the churches in Essex, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and, of course, Iconium, you know, central Turkey is where Paul himself actually came from. Um, and his, his, his base church that he planted was in Iconium. So this area actually covers, you know, Paul's own kind of home church. Um, scholars place the best date around AD 50, um, and uh, probably between his second and third missionary journeys. So it's, it's, a, it's a good while after the churches have been uh, planted. Um, now, the main, the main push of the letter, the main reason that he's written it, is uh, that the churches in Galatia, which were largely Gentile, I mean, obviously there'd have been Jews within them, but largely they were Gentile, they're being affected by the circumcision party. Now, we saw the circumcision party when we were doing Acts of the Apostles, and the, these were Jewish Christians who were insisting that Gentiles, once they became Christians, should then come under the Jewish law and be circumcised. So, so what these... What you've got here is that these are Jews that hail mainly from Jerusalem. They're genuine believers, they're genuine Christians, but they believe that the Gentiles should come under the Jewish law, under the Old Testament law and all that. And uh, they were a pretty, pretty vehement bunch. They, they caused a lot of uh, problems. They were vehement in, in, in their belief that Gentiles ought to, in effect, become Jews. Um, <clears throat> now, they, they believed Paul to be a false apostle. Um, because obviously Paul was the great hero of Gentiles not in any way needing to come under the Jewish law. Um, and uh, so obviously they, they had to very much target Paul and find some way of disposing of his influence in, in the Gentile churches. And they did this. I mean, we saw in Corinthians, and you know, we'll keep seeing as we go through it, that Paul was under constant attack from people who wanted to get his influence out of the way. And uh, the main way that they tried to do it was to, you know, say that he was a false apostle and, uh, you know, that he wasn't like Peter and John and all the others and that he was actually preaching a false gospel. This was the tack that they always took and this was the tack uh, that the circumcision party has been taken. And they've been going around all the churches uh, in Galatia, you know, sort of, um, you know, downing Paul and uh, saying he was a false apostle. And they said that the only reason that Paul was, was saying that the Gentiles didn't have to come under law and be circumcised, they said his reason for doing it is he's a compromiser. And they said all he wants is the applause of men. And he knows that when he's amongst the Gentiles, if he says, no, you don't have to be circumcised, well, obviously, you know, he'll get everyone on his side. 
so so this is you know kind of the 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 main reason that paul is writing to the galatian churches um and of course in in in, in acts 15 we saw this this big council in jerusalem when you know believers came from all over specifically to sort out this very problem and the apostles in jerusalem along with the elders and everyone in the church they got together specifically to thrash out the thing do gentiles need to come under the old testament law the old covenant the sign of which being circumcised and you'll remember that their decision was absolutely clear james was the spokesman and they wrote a letter to all the churches and they said gentile christians do not need to come under the law they're under the covenant of noah but that applied to the gentiles but in no way the Gentile Christians need to come under the old covenant law of Moses. That was the declaration of all the apostles at the church in Jerusalem. And that was the position that Paul was representing. But nevertheless, they're having a go at him. And so Paul has to write to set things straight. And so really, in Galatians, this, this letter deals with the, the subject of a law versus grace. Now, you remember, we actually did a... a series of I think it was some eight talks where we specifically dealt with with the twin errors that afflicts the church of law and grace um, you know the old covenant versus the new covenant which covenant are we under or is it a mixture of both and you're remembering that series we defined the error of legalism as being demanding of yourself and others far more than the new covenant demands and then there's the equal and opposite error of license which is kind of do what you like you know let's carry on in sin so that grace may abound and the error there is not demanding enough of yourself and other people. You know, it's saying, oh, okay, I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus will forgive me. So this is what Paul is dealing with. He's sorting out the law and grace issue, uh, the errors of legalism and license. And, and so I, I commend the, the law and grace series to you as a much more detailed um, analysis of that subject. And uh, just, just as a little bit of a, you know, historical interest, it was this letter of Paul to Galatia uh, that was the means of Martin Luther becoming a Christian, and arguably this is the letter that kicked the Reformation off. So, you know, it, it's, it's quite an important piece of a New Testament writing. Anyway, let's, let's dive straight into it then. Um, and uh, in verses, well, in chapter 1, we'll take our normal approach, just go through it in logical segments. Um, chapter 1, and in the first five verses you have the introduction, and Paul reminds them you know he says this is you know in the ancient world when you wrote a letter it started off with who you were which kind of makes sense really isn't it because if you get a letter first thing you do is look at the back to see who it's from well they, they did it in the front you see which was much more sensible um, and paul's you know again says this is from me paul an apostle and he reminds them and he's straight in commissioned by god and not man and paul says i am what i am i'm an apostle because of the calling of God in my life. And remember, the circumcision party was saying he was a false apostle, i.e. he wasn't really an apostle, he wasn't really called by God to be doing what he was doing. And Paul also reminds them that his team, his co-workers, were also called by God in the same way. So he's straight in there, setting the scene, uh, you know, kind of like the, the push here, that he's demonstrating that he is a true apostle, and therefore what he teaches is true as well. And he wishes them grace and peace, a standard kind of greeting to people. And, um, and then he, he just kind of, as he often does, you know, refers to the, you know, the, the main thing that God has done in our lives as Christians. And, and he reminds them that 
that Jesus gave himself for our sins. And that, that's the heart of it all, isn't it? And he says that Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he could rescue us from this present evil age. Because this present evil age is going to end up in the lake of fire. Jesus has rescued us from that. And uh, he said as well, as his father willed. So it wasn't just Jesus. Jesus was carrying out the will of his father. And yet the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, they are in total agreement with absolutely everything they do. They work as one. And, uh, and he says, glory be to God, and just gives, gives praise to God for that. Now in verses 6 to 10, he, he expresses um, his astonishment that they are what he calls deserting the grace of Christ. That's a heck of a thing to say, but you can do it. As a believer, you can desert the grace of Christ. And of course the point is that grace is the opposite of salvation by works. And what these, these circumcision party were saying is that you're only going to get to heaven by fulfilling the law of Moses, really. And, 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 and Paul says, look, you're, if you go down that road, you are deserting the grace of Christ because grace is the opposite of uh, salvation by works. And, uh, and he says, you know, not, not only that, he says you're turning, you're not just deserting the grace of Christ, but in so doing, you're turning to a different gospel. But he says, but the gospel you're turning to, he says, is no gospel at all. And of course the point is that the word gospel means good news. Now the good news is that salvation is a free gift from Jesus. If you turn to a gospel that says that you've got to get to heaven by doing your own good works, well that is not good news. And I'll tell you why, because it won't get you to heaven. <laughs> Simple as that. So Paul says, you know, this, this gospel you're turning to, it's not good news at all, because it's, it's a gospel that demands something of you that no one can do i.e. save themselves virtually by works of the law. And, uh, and, and Paul says, look, he says whether he, Paul says, look, even if I or an angel, so Paul says it doesn't matter who it is, he says if anyone comes along and preaches a different gospel than the one I preach to you, i that salvation is through faith in Jesus, and he says even if I do it, or if, if an angel appears, he says let them be a curse. He's saying, under no circumstances accept anyone who is preaching a gospel that is different from the one you receive from me, which is that salvation is purely the grace of God, and it's through faith in Jesus. You remember, in 2 Corinthians, the last talk we did on this, we saw that Paul was talking there about not just another gospel, but another Jesus. And when people come along saying, you know, Jesus wants you to become a Jew, and, you know, Jesus wants you to go under the law and be bound by all the laws of the Old Covenant. That's a different Jesus. But Jesus, who actually exists, doesn't require that of Gentiles. Of course he doesn't. And, uh, you know, so Paul says, look, um, let's, let's have no more of it. And then as a side, he says, um, oh, by the way, um, do you think this is an example of me being a man pleaser? He says, if I just, you know, he says, if I was a compromiser, would I just write that to you? He says, if I was a compromiser, like the circumcision party is saying, he says, I wouldn't say that to you, would I? So, so Paul is immediately coming against this ridiculous notion that they've got, that the circumcision party have given them, that, you know, that, that Paul just says what people want to hear. Because if that was what he was doing, well, he's just told the churches in Galatia something that they did not want to hear. And Paul says, I haven't, I haven't you know, stepped back from doing it. So obviously, he says, my critics, it's a nonsense what they're accusing me of. Now, in, in verse 11 through to verse 24, he now 
directly deals with this charge that he's not a true apostle. Now, remember, by a true apostle, what we're talking about, we're not talking about apostles in the sense that there are still apostles today, you know, like church planters, itinerant ministries, evangelists, and things like that. We're talking about apostles in the sense of those who had the infallible teaching of Jesus and, in effect, were responsible for the writing of the New Testament. So, of course, this is absolute, unique, one-off apostleship that ended, obviously, with the death of the apostles. Now then, the question is, was Paul a genuine apostle or not? Was he one of them? Now then, we're going to see his argument to demonstrate to the churches, of course I am one of those apostles. And he says, let me prove it to you. And he says, look, <coughs> the gospel that I preach to you and the gospel that I've been preaching since I became a Christian was received directly from Jesus by revelation. He says, I didn't get it secondhand from anyone else. He says, all the things I'm teaching you about the mystery of the church, uh, everything it means to be a Christian, all the things about the end time, the whole caboodle that I'm teaching, I didn't get it from anyone else. I got it directly from Jesus in heaven. I didn't get it from other men. Now, we, we saw again in 2 Corinthians, Paul at one point actually spent time with Jesus in heaven, didn't he? Now, what he does, he reminds them, and remember, he's talking to Galatians who were largely Gentiles, okay? And he, he reminds them of his own Jewish background. And he reminds them that his own zeal and, and kind, of, you know, kind of commitment to everything Jewish actually led him to persecute believers. Because Paul used to go around, you know, sort of like dragging believers out of their houses and throwing them in jail so they could be tried for heresy. So, so, so Paul said that, you know, reminds them that he was in complete allegiance to what he calls then the traditions of his fathers. Now, that, that's interesting. That's a tradition of the elders. That's all the stuff we looked at when we did the tradition series. And, of course, what he's saying here is that as, as, as a zealous Jew, he wasn't just committed to the Old Testament teaching. He was committed to all the other teachings that they developed, the tradition of the elders. So what he's saying is... I mean, you know, sort of like, he says, anything that the people in the circumcision party are, just culturally and religiously and historically speaking, I was, and more so, you see. He says, that is my background. And he said, but God set him apart from birth. Because obviously, at the end of the day, you choose Jesus because Jesus chose you. You gave yourself to Jesus because the Father gave you to Jesus, if you see what I mean. And Paul says, look, but, but God had set him apart from birth. And he said, that was my background. But he said, that wasn't my destiny. God had other plans for me. And, 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 and he says, by grace, God had called him in order to reveal Jesus in him. That's what Paul said. He says, God set me apart from birth, and by grace, not by works, by grace, had called me to reveal Jesus in me. Now, at the end, that applies to all of us. That is, that is why God has called you. Not just to get you to heaven. I mean, it is to get you to heaven. You're going to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus. But it's to reveal Jesus in you. All right. So the point is, you're, you're going to heaven. Well, I'm all, you know, I'm all right, Jack, pull the ladder up. No. Now he wants to reveal Jesus in us so we can be the means of serving other people so they can come to know Jesus as well. And, and Paul said immediately, God then sent him to preach the gospel amongst the Gentiles. 
And he tells them that having been converted, and remember he was on the road to Damascus, wasn't he? Southern Turkey. Um, but he went to Arabia, and then having been there for a while, he proceeded on to Damascus. And what he says is throughout this period of time, he didn't meet any of the other apostles. Now this is important. At no point thus far has he met any of the other apostles. Now, three years later, he reminds them that he went to Jerusalem. Now, by this time, Paul is well established in the ministry God's given him to. So, you know, his claim to apostleship is well underway. And he says, three years later, he went to Jerusalem for 15 days. And he spent time with Peter. And no one doubted that Peter was an apostle, right? He met James. Now, that was Jesus' half-brother, all right, who wasn't an apostle in the same way Peter was, but would certainly have known the teaching of Jesus and known that Peter was an apostle, all right? And he said that, that, that Peter and James, because all the other apostles were away, but he met Peter and James, all right, and, um, and both of them had only heard about him. Now they're actually meeting. And Paul reminds the Galatians that at this meeting, they fully endorsed his calling and the gospel he preached. So here's the important point. By the time Paul met one of the other apostles, Peter, everything he was preaching and teaching was already well underway. He didn't get it from Peter. It was already complete. So when he met Peter, he says Peter endorsed his teaching and apostleship. Now the point is, the circumcision party, they might be trying to say that Paul is a false apostle, but they wouldn't have said that about Peter. They wouldn't have dared. So if you see Peter saying, uh, sorry, Paul is saying, Peter endorsed my calling. Now that we move into chapter 2, that it's, it's when you go through the Bible like this that you realise that useful though it is, the chapter and verse divisions, they're not very well done at all. In fact, they're appallingly done, some of them. Uh, but anyway, it goes on to chapter 2, virtually mid-sentence, mid, mid you know. But anyway, chapter 2, in the first 10 verses, and Paul carries on. And he says, 14 years later, he went back there with Barnabas and Titus. So can you see, all these years he's been a Christian, now for, he's, he's had a few days with Peter, 14 years earlier, who endorsed him as an apostle. Now, 14 years later, he goes back with Barnabas and Titus, I, his apostolic team, and, he, and again, the apostles in Jerusalem completely okayed them. And this time, you know, there were quite a few of the other apostles there. So the point is, Paul is saying, my, my claim to my apostleship stands on its own merit, because you've seen it in my life, you've had the teaching. But now he's defending his calling. And he's saying, well, it's easy to demonstrate. You know full well that all the other apostles accept me as an apostle. So the circumcision party might well come along and say Paul's not an apostle. But the important thing is, all the other apostles said he was an apostle. And the circumcision party would never have doubted the other apostles. So you see his argument. There's really no way around it. Well, of course not. Paul was actually an apostle. And, um, and, and then he reminds them that, that on this occasion, when he went down to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, now Titus was a Gentile. So here's Titus, a Gentile, working on Paul's apostolic team. Controversy. Should Gentile Christians be forced to be circumcised? Period. Well, Paul says that no one down there, okay, uh, none of the apostles pushed him to have Titus circumcised. He says the circumcision party did. They said the apostles didn't. This is proving his point. None of the apostles taught 
that Gentile Christians should come under the law. And, um, and basically, the Jerusalem apostles, he reminds them, endorsed him as apostle to the Gentiles in much the same way that Peter was seen as the apostle to the Jews. Um, and, and Paul says, and the right hand of fellowship was extended to myself and my team. Wait, what he's saying is that even after I'd been going strong for nearly 20 years in my apostolic calling, all right, closer to the beginning of it, I met Peter. Peter said, Paul, absolutely great, no problem. I accept that you're an apostle of Jesus, all right? And <coughs> now, <coughs> much later on, they go back again, and all the apostles there say, Paul, we accept that you're an apostle. So what Paul is saying is, if all the other apostles accept that I'm an apostle, then that concludes the argument. Who are the circumcision party to say, if they're going to say I'm a false apostle, they've got to say all the other apostles are false apostles as well. Now, in verses 11 to 14, he, he recounts a visit that Peter made him up in Antioch. Remember Antioch, up in central Turkey, area of Galatia. This is, this, this is where Paul made his home church. It was where Paul actually, as it were, came from. Not actually Antioch, but it was that region that he came from himself. And it became his base church in his, all his missionary travels and that. And uh, he, he recounts an occasion when Peter was up visiting the church. And, uh, and, and Peter was getting on famously with all the Gentile believers up there. You know, they were breaking bread together. Oh, they were sharing little supper, eating together in each other's house. Having a great time, you know, just like we all do together. No problem at all. But on one occasion when Peter was there, the circumcision party put in an appearance. And um, having incidentally been sent by James, you know, which was a bit of a, you know, it was still a bit of a problem. The Jews in Jerusalem had a job letting go of, you know, all this. Even some of the apostles did. And, uh, but anyway, the circumcision party turned up, and Peter was, was kind of scared of the circumcision party, and he wouldn't eat with the Gentile Christians anymore. So in effect, he suddenly put them out of fellowship, because they weren't circumcised. And even Barnabas, on, on Paul's apostolic team, who was Jewish, he got caught up in it. And basically, Paul recounts how he publicly rebuked Peter for not acting in line with the gospel. Now, that's right. Remember, the Bible says that, you know, elders ought to be rebuked publicly. I mean, not every time they do something wrong, but I mean, if something's serious enough. Because if you have someone in leadership, if, if they really do something that's bad, they need to be dealt with publicly so that everyone they're influencing can see that they're being corrected. And, and Paul, in front of everyone, he rebuked Peter, um, you know, for going against the, the truth of, uh, of the gospel. And, um, and the, the, the point was that Peter accepted the rebuke. Now the point is, if Paul had rebuked Peter on this issue, and Paul had been wrong, not Peter, then you'd have had this clash between apostles. But the point was that Peter stood corrected. Peter accepted the rebuke. And again, all this was absolute proof that Paul was a genuine apostle, and that Peter, who the circumcision party believed was a genuine apostle, accepted a rebuke from Paul for doing what the circumcision party were trying to do. So when Peter actually gave in to the circumcision party, he ended up repenting. So can you see, for the Gentiles in the Galatian churches, all this was demonstrating beyond doubt that Paul was a genuine apostle and that what he was teaching, that Gentiles don't need to come under the Jewish law, was absolutely right, and that it was the circumcision party who were wrong. <laughs> and uh, just, just, just as a quick, you know, kind of a sidelight, 
<coughs> on how difficult this issue was for all the Jewish believers, <coughs> you'll remember that there was um, a, a time as well when, when Paul, who was the main hero amongst the apostles, you know, for the Gentiles, <coughs> you'll remember there was an occasion when Timothy, who was on his apostolic team, who was half Jewish, Paul made Paul circumcised him. So even Paul gave into it every now and then. Because obviously, although the apostles, their teaching was infallible, they were still sinners. So Peter went against it, Paul went against it. And uh, I, I just refer you to, um, in the expository series, we did a series of talks on uh, the letter of James. And uh, the first talk, we did a full-scale introduction looking at this whole problem and the struggle for the apostles to actually get away from the pull um, of of the law, and you know, and so there, there, there's much more detail um, in that particular talk. I mean, the apostles were dust just like we are, and uh, but the the point is that Paul has demonstrated beyond all reasonable doubt <coughs> that he was a genuine apostle in the same way that Peter was, in the same way that John was, in the same way that Matthew was. Uh, I mean, there was no question about it, and it was it was daft for anyone to suggest that he wasn't. So the point is. Paul was fully endorsed by all the other apostles, was preaching exactly the same as them years before he'd even met them. So, uh, you know, therefore that, that by and large concludes his defence, and it's kind of, I mean, there's no argument against it, i.e. the circumcision party were the ones who were wrong. Now, in, in verse 15, we're still in uh, chapter 2 here, um, Paul now begins his argument to actually refute the false teaching that the circumcision party are putting out. Now, I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. Because in reading these verses, these are the heart of the letter. Get this, and, and you've got the whole push of what Paul is writing. So let's read chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, We who are Jews by birth, and not Gentile sinners, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. So that's, that's the key, that's the heart of the letter, that's the push that he's giving. And this is the, the thing that he now has to refute. Remember what's happening is <clears throat> that Jewish Christians are saying that even though these Gentiles have put their faith in Jesus and come to know him, nevertheless they're saying that the Gentiles have now got to become circumcised and they've got to come under the Old Covenant in the same way that Israel was. And uh, that's, that's now the argument that Paul um, is going to uh, refute. And, um, and the way he does it is, is, is that he, he has to, to deal with the objections that people give to his teaching. And what they're saying is, that, that if Paul teaches that Gentiles don't have to come under the law, then they're saying, um, you know, one, one, that the law therefore is no good. And how can you say the law was no good if God gave it? And secondly, it must be meaning that you can just carry on and sin any way you like. And these are the two things that Paul is coming against. And the, the first thing he says, look, is, is to say, when you say that justification isn't by the law, that doesn't mean that you're saying that there's anything wrong with the law. So Paul has to demonstrate that. 
to say that Jewish, that Gentile Christians don't come under the law is not saying there's anything wrong with the law and Paul's going to explain why that is. And he says, and it doesn't mean either that you're promoting sin. To say that you don't have to come under the law doesn't mean that you're therefore saying, oh well, it's grace, you can just do what you like and carry on sinning. Um, we, 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 we saw this in Romans, didn't we? When Paul deals with the fact, he says, look, shall we you know, continue in sin so grace may abound? And he says, by no means. It doesn't mean that in any way at all. And he says, look, after all, he says, it's the law that judges you as a sinner deserving death. It's only because there's a law there that you know that you're breaking it. You only know that you're bent by looking at a straight line. The law is the straight that shows your bentness. And he says, that is what the law was there to do. It's the law that judges you as a sinner deserving death. But he says, look, the point is, because we're in Jesus, because we're one with Jesus, we share Jesus' experience. And he says, therefore, we've died to Jesus. We've died in Jesus on the cross. We died there on the cross with him. And he says, Jesus now lives through us. So he says, we're actually dead people. And he says, dead people are no longer under the law. They're not. I mean, if Joel dropped dead today, I mean, the law of the land wouldn't apply to him anymore. And Paul says, look, we died with Jesus. So therefore, the law doesn't apply to us anyway. And he says, but not only that, it was the law itself, as it were, that killed us off. And, uh, you know, and thereby rendering us dead to it. So he says the law has done its job. He says the job of the law was actually there to kill us off. The law was there to show us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And then to bring us to Jesus so that we could die to the law, die to sin, die to the world. It's as simple as that. And so he says, look, because we're now in Jesus and not under the law, he says that means that the law has done its job. So he says, I'm not saying anything against the law. In fact, quite the contrary. He says, I'm saying the law did a very good job. The law fulfilled exactly what it was there to do. And he says, look, to build the law of Moses back up in your life, having died to it, he says, is to actually go against the law. So he says, the law doesn't want you to go back to it. He says, that is not what the old covenant actually demands of you. The old covenant was there to bring you to the point where you could die to it. Think about it. You can only be tried for a crime once. After that, it's actually going against the law to try somebody again. So what Paul is saying is the law has done its job, and it did its job well. And he said, to go back to the law is to set aside the grace of Jesus. Or the new covenant. He says, if you go back to the old covenant, the law, he says, that is to set aside the grace of Jesus, the new covenant. So he says, if you go back to the law, you're, you're cocking a snoot, as it were. You're saying no to the new, um, the new way to grace. So he says, look, the point is, the law doesn't want you to go back to it. If you go back to the law, you're going against the old covenant. But he says, but if you go back to the law, you're then going against the old covenant, the new covenant. So he says, if you go back to the law, you're going against both covenants. And he says, how ridiculous to be doing that. And, uh, and, and he says, look, if righteousness had been attainable under the law, he said, why on earth would Jesus have died? He said, there'd have been no point whatsoever in the death of Jesus if righteousness could have been attainable under the law. And he says, are you really saying that Jesus' death is for nothing? And of course, even the circumcision party wouldn't have dared quite put it like that. So, so what Paul is saying here, look, 
He says grace, or the new covenant, doesn't in any way at all go against the law or the old covenant. As if there was something wrong with the old covenant. He says it's not like that. He said the job of the law was to bring us to grace and death in Jesus. He says that is what the law was for. So he says the law doesn't want anyone going back to it. He says if you reject grace, you're not honouring the law. Quite the contrary. The law was there to bring you to grace. So if you go back to it, if you reject grace, that isn't honouring the law. Quite the contrary. And he says, in actual fact, you dishonour the law by rejecting grace. Now, in chapter 3, and we're going to see him continuing this, this, this argument and banging the nail home from lots of different, different angles. In chapter 3, and verses 1 to 5, he tells them that they're foolish to have been bewitched. And the actual Greek word is charmed. Almost as if, you know, the false teaching has cast a spell over them. He, he says, you've been very foolish to allow this to happen. And he said, look, <coughs> he said, you came to salvation through simple faith in Jesus. He said more than that, he said, you saw miracles worked through simple faith in Jesus. So he says, having come to Jesus by faith, having seen miracles worked by faith, he says, why on earth are you now deciding to attain your goal, i.e. living the Christian life, on the basis of human effort through obeying the Jewish law? He says, this is foolishness. He says, this is completely illogical. He says, in effect, you're being daft. You're being silly. And in verses 6 to 9, he brings out the example of Abraham. Now, we saw this in Romans chapter 4. He went back to Abraham. So, a bit of revision here. And of course, the point is, he reminds them, how was Abraham justified? Abraham was justified by faith. Now then, Genesis 15 verse 6 says this, He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So there is Abraham, the first Jew, being justified, made right with God through faith. Also, concerning Abraham, numerous times the Lord said, all nations will be blessed through you. So there we see that this salvation by faith that Abraham had as the first Jew was going to spread to the Gentiles, to all nations. So the point is, in the Old Testament, way back in Genesis, Genesis foresaw that Gentiles would be justified by faith and in so being they would share the blessing of Abraham. So what Paul's saying, look, the whole thing, this justification by faith, it started with Jews. It started with Abraham. And remember, the Jews look back on Abraham as being the father of faith. And Paul's saying, look, we Jews just shouldn't have a problem here. What on earth is our problem with the idea of Gentiles being justified by faith in Jesus? He says, for heaven's sake, Abraham was the first Jew he was our great hero, and he was justified before God by faith. And moreover, through his life, it was prophesied that this blessing was going to spread to the Gentiles as well. So Paul's saying, there shouldn't be any problem here in the Jewish mind at all. Now then, in verses 10 to 14, he goes on and he gives some further um, Old Testament quotes. Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, which basically says that you're cursed if you do not live by everything that's written in the law. 
Um, now then, I mean, clearly, no one lives by everything that's in the law. I mean, who on earth can claim to do that? And so, <coughs> he says, this, this is here in the Old Testament, and here is this daft notion, and it is a daft notion, that the law could ever justify anyone. He says, of course the law can't justify. The law can only condemn, because you can't keep the law. And he says, and in so doing, it was doing its job. The law can only condemn us. All right. He quotes Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which was the heart of when he wrote to Romans. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, this is quoting from an Old Testament prophet. He quotes from Leviticus 18, verse 5. Now, this is speaking of the law, and it says, The man who does these things shall live by them. Now, the point is the law is doing things. Habakkuk said that you're justified by faith, which is believing something. Now then, if, if, if you're going to be justified by the law, then you've got to do the law. It's a doing thing. It's different from faith. The problem is no one can do the law. So what good is it to you if you need to be justified by law? That's why it's not good news. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy verse 23, where it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And what he says there is he says, look, the whole point is we're under the curse of the law's condemnation. Because we're sinners, the law simply says the soul that sins it shall die, period. There's no way around that. But he said Jesus hung on the tree for us, on the cross. He became a curse for us. And he redeemed us, paid the price for our freedom, so we could get out the slave market of sin. We covered all that in the Salvation series. So he says Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So the result is this. The blessing that was bestowed upon Abraham, which was salvation by faith, was also passed on to the Gentiles through Jesus. And Paul says, so you receive the Spirit, i.e. you're born again, when you put your faith in Jesus. So can you see his argument here? He's showing that the whole of the Old Testament teaches justification by faith as well. Now in verses 15 to 18, he, his train of thought continues, and he says, look, when, when a covenant is established, it stands. I mean, you know, when two parties come together and they make a covenant, they say, you don't just forget about it, it's there. And he says, look, God's promise to Abraham that he has just highlighted, all right? Now, according to Genesis 12, verse 7, chapter 13, verse 15, and 24, verse 7, God's covenant with Abraham was that everyone, the whole earth, would be blessed and that this blessing and promise would be fulfilled in Abraham's seed. Now that's what the Old Testament said, that this blessing was going to be through Abraham's seed. Now what Paul highlights here is he said it doesn't say through his seeds. He says it's through his seed, singular, through one person, not loads of people, through one person. Now then, I mean, most, you know, I suppose you thought it was Isaac, and in a way it was. But what Paul says here, and he says, this seed of Abraham is Jesus. <coughs> so he says we see quite clearly that God made a covenant with Abraham that was going to mean the salvation of Jews and Gentiles through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Now here's the point. He said, but the law came 400 years later. So he says, look, a covenant of the law that came later doesn't invalidate or do away with the covenant of faith that God had with Abraham. 
So he says, you don't just throw Abraham's covenant away. He says, Abraham's covenant still stands. And what was the covenant with Abraham? The covenant with Abraham was salvation through faith in Jesus. And he says, the law, the old covenant, as it were, came 400 years later. So he says, that doesn't set aside the other covenant. Of course not. So what we've got here is that the new covenant, what we call the new covenant, salvation through faith, actually preceded the old covenant, the Mosaic law. So what Paul is establishing is when he as an apostle is teaching that Gentiles are saved purely through faith in Jesus and do not in any way at all need to become involved with the Mosaic law, he's demonstrating here that he is teaching exactly what the Old Testament itself taught. And the whole point is God's covenant with Abraham salvation through faith in Jesus came 400 years before God's covenant with Moses. So it's quite clear that this is what every Jew who understood their Bible ought to have understood anyway, that salvation would be through faith in Jesus and nothing to do with the law at all because the covenant of the law didn't come along for another 400 years. So in verses 19 and 20, he, he then turns to the question, okay, so why, why was the law given then? And, and he said, look, he said the reason that the law was given was to help Israel realise how much they needed Jesus. Um, he said, look, salvation would be through faith in Jesus. But you only know you need to be saved if you know you're a sinner. So to give a Israel, every possible advantage. What God decided to do, well not decided to do it already, is that through Moses he gave this law which would be absolutely impossible for them to keep. And it would prove beyond doubt that they needed to be justified, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus. So he says the law was given to prove that they couldn't keep the law. <coughs> the law was given to show them how much they needed to be saved simply through faith, by God's grace. Or not at all. Simple as that. And what he does is he makes mention, this is a you know, bit that you know, people often don't understand. He, he, he talks about the fact that the law had angels and Moses as mediator, all right? um, but, the, but the new covenant has no mediator. It's just, just got God, no mediator. Now, I'll just, just explain that. You'll remember that when we uh, did the Law and Grace series, we looked at the different kinds of covenants that there were in the ancient world. And uh, we, we, we saw that there was what was, there were parity ones where two equals were involved. Where, of course, you don't get any parity covenants that involve God because God has no equal. But we saw that there were what were called suzerain vassal, um, you know, deals that went down. Where maybe you had a nation that was invaded by a stronger power. And the stronger power, the king was called a suzerain. And he would have a covenant with the vassal nation. And as long as the vassal nation did what the suzerain wanted, he'd look after them and that was called the covenant of the suzerain and the vassal. Now the law was that sort of thing, because it depended on what Israel did. So that is why Moses had to be a mediator in the covenant that God gave to him, because Israel had a part to play. It was a suzerain vassal one. And remember, God said to Israel, as long as you keep the law, I'll look after you. If you go against the law, I won't look after you, which he didn't. And so the point is, it's demonstrating that the law depended on what man did. Moses was a mediator, man had a part to play. But the new covenant is what we saw to be a royal grant one. And a royal grant covenant was simply when a king or a ruler who had the power to do so simply gave you something. 
He just wanted to do it. He says, I give you this land. I give you this woman to be your wife. I give you this treasure or whatever. A royal grant covenant. It was a free gift. And you accepted it, period, because he was stronger than you were. Okay, now that's what the new covenant is. It's a royal grant. And it depends purely on what God does. Therefore, God was the only mediator involved. I, there was no mediator. Because our salvation is purely something that God's done. It's not something that we've done. God decided to give us salvation. He's bigger than we are. We took it. You see what I mean? That's what salvation is. And so that's, that's why Paul has that bit there about Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. But, uh, you know, the new covenant was uh, without mediation in any sense. Because it was simply something that God gave us a free gift. Which is Paul's whole argument. How do for Gentiles have to come under the law? Now, in verses 21 to 25, he deals with the, the, the question, okay, so is the law somehow opposed to faith? He says, is there some kind of, you know, disagreement, some clash between, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the Judaic law and faith? And Paul's answer is, no, of course there's, there's no clash between them. Paul says, look, if the law had been able to save, then God would have used it to do so. I mean, would God have given up Jesus to the cross? if we could have been saved some other way? Of course not. Um, but the point is, a sinful world, by definition, is not justified by law. Who would be justified by law? Righteous people. But the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, and that's the whole point. The idea of being justified by the law is just simply a silly, illogical idea. It's to misunderstand. It's in the same order of misunderstanding that you get in your car and decide to fly to America. It's not going to happen. Your car is not designed to fly. And the law was never designed to save anyone. The, I mean, my car might drive me to the airport. I ain't going to fly anywhere in it. The law will drive me to the airport, but Jesus is the aeroplane that's going to fly me. Can you see? And that's the point. The law was simply there to get you to Jesus. It's as simple as that. And, 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 and he gives the example, he says, look, what, what the law kind of did is it locked people up to their sinfulness. Um, you know, in jail, you do things wrong, you get locked up. And Paul said, that, that's what the law did. It, 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 it locked you up and it really made you aware of how sinful you were. That, that was the idea of it. And, and the reason that it did that is that when faith came, when the new covenant came, when Jesus came, they would know just how much they needed it and then they could therefore be set free. So picture that, like the law locks you up to your sinfulness, and, and you're so aware that you're sinful, that then, when Jesus comes along, the, 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 the dungeon door flies open, and you realise you can be free. And Paul says, that is what the law was done. And he says, look, so once faith came, once Jesus died on the cross, once, once that was done, then the Jewish law had done its work. And because it had done its work, it, it just wasn't needed anymore. The law could never save. The law was never meant to save. My car was never meant to fly across the Atlantic. The law was never meant to save. But it was there to bring people to the faith in Jesus that can save them. So again, my car can drive me to the airport. That's what it was designed to do. Can't fly me anywhere. The law will bring you to Jesus. That's what it was designed to do. But it can't actually save you. And so Paul says the law did its job perfectly. He says it's wonderful. But now, like a rocket, you know, sort of like it gets out of the atmosphere, it stopped going, and then the rocket booster that had all the, the, the you know, the uh, power in it, 
the, the fuel, it falls away, so it's not needed anymore. In exactly the same way, the Jewish law is not needed anymore. Because it's done its job. And then in verse 26 to 29, <clears throat> Paul says, look, and now as believers, he says, we're all sons of God. He says, because we've come to Jesus, because we have faith in Jesus, we are now God's family. We are all sons of God. And the idea of sons being the heir of all things. So that's why even Christian ladies are sons, because they are heirs with Jesus as well. <clears throat> so he said, the fact that we're family now overrides all else. And he says, look, as far as God's concerned, in the family of God, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. He says, all these distinctions fall away compared to the fact that we are sons of God. And, of course, his argument here is, look, since, since family unity like this is there, it just reveals how wrong it was for these Jewish legalists to want the Gentiles to live like they did. Because that, that, that's not what family is all about. We're a new family. We're, we're, neither, we're neither Jew, we're neither Gentile. We're all God's sons. And so there's no question of Gentiles, in effect, becoming Jews. Because we're all members of God's family, and that has overridden everything. In fact, elsewhere, Paul says we're actually one new man. We're like a new spiritual species. And it overrides being a Jew, or it overrides being a Gentile. Therefore, how ridiculous to think in terms of a, a, Jew, a Gentile becoming a Jew. You might as well say that a man needs to become a woman. He says it's absolutely ridiculous. And he says, look, as Christians, we are Abraham's seed. We're now one with Jesus. We are Abraham's seed and we are heirs to the promise made to him. So everything that Jesus is and has is ours. And, Je and, and Paul says, so therefore Jewishness and questions of the Jewish law are just now completely irrelevant. And in chapter 4 and the first seven verses, he develops more this idea of being heirs. And again, he's going to attack this thing about the law from yet another angle now. Okay, And, and he gives the example of a child who's an heir to a fabulous estate. You know, so I mean, here's a child and their dad's got, you know, all this land and his aristocracy and some big king somewhere or something like that. So this, this child, everything, you know, sort of like that dad's got is there for the child. He's an heir to it. But the point is, children don't come into their inheritance until they're much older. And, um, and what happens is that this child, this heir to the estate, is kept under guardians and trustees because his dad has set up a trust and the child can't get to the estate. There's all these guardians and trustees that look after the estate for him because they know better, all right. And, and there are all the rules of the estate. And as a child, he, he doesn't seem much better off than a slave, really, because although it's all his, he can't get to it. There's all these rules and regulations he's got to abide by. There are other people making all his decisions. <coughs> in fact, this is all the restrictions of childhood. But the point is, once he comes of age, once he becomes an adult, then he receives all the benefits of this inheritance, of this estate. And Paul said, now the law was like those guardians and trustees. And he says, Israel, all those years through Old Testament history, Israel was, was, was like a little child. And the law was the guardian that, 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 that was kind of preventing Israel getting what it should have. Because as it were, as a child and not old enough. But he said, but once faith came, 
that was like when they grew up and then they could get to the inheritance themselves. And he refers to this like when the child, the heir, the child is under all the trustees and that. Paul refers to that as being in slavery to the basic principles of the world. So what he's saying is that Israel, before Jesus came, the law kind of acted like the trustees that, 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 that control the child's life until it's old enough to get dad's inheritance. Now I'm just going to read uh, verses um, 4 to 7 on this. And he says, But when the time had fully come, he said, when you grow up, he said, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, see, to buy them out of it, and you redeem something, you buy out of whatever it's in bondage to, so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. And so what he's saying is, look, you're like children who have grown up, and like you're 18 years old, and now you've got the full inheritance. And he says the full inheritance of Jesus. He says, but when you were younger, did you have the full inheritance? He says, no. You had all these adults telling you what you can and can't do, making you do your homework. You know, stuff like that. Not letting you go out to play. And he says, now the law was just like that. And he says, look, now that you've come into your inheritance, would a child, or would that person then want to go back to childhood where they couldn't be free? The answer is no. And so what Paul is saying, this is exactly the same with you and the law. If you go back to the law now, You'd be like an adult who's going back to school. You'd be like an adult who's going back and rather earning a wage, you just get given your pocket money on a Saturday and it's not very much either. You see, and he says that would be the stupidity. The law was there until you grew up. When you came to Jesus, you were grown up. You get your inheritance. What's the inheritance? Salvation through faith in Jesus. What was the law? The law were the guardians and trustees that held you down before you were old enough to get your inheritance. He says, who wants to go back to that? <coughs> so therefore, he says, now that you're no longer a slave or a child, now you're fully grown and got the inheritance, these basic principles of the law are no longer needed. And in verses 8 and 11, he says, look, but crumbs, but now this is what you're doing. And he says, not only that, you're, you're Gentiles. And he says, look, for you as Gentiles, to go and put yourself under the Jewish law. I mean, Paul could half understand Jews doing it, Jewish Christians going back to it, but these are Gentiles. And he says, look, for you to go under the Jewish law is the equivalent to you, refer, you know, returning to all the false gods and all the false religions you were into before you became Christians. He says, it is absolutely ridiculous. And he says, you have special days, special seasons, special years, all these rules and regulations that weren't part of the gospel. And he says, I fear I've wasted my efforts on you. He says, what's the point? He says, you've become free in Jesus. And now you're going back to a whole list of do's and don'ts, which are entirely irrelevant to your salvation, like an adult going back to the do's and don'ts of childhood. You know, I mean, it daft, you know, an adult feeling they've got to be in at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. And then Paul says, that, that, that's what you're doing if you go back under law. And uh, in, in, in verses 12 to 20, what he does, we'll actually read this, 
he appears, <coughs> he appeals to their friendship. Because Paul's known him for years in the light of the circumcision party trying to turn them against him. So let's actually read verses 12 to 20. <coughs> he says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I was Christ Jesus himself. So he says, this is the relationship we had. And he says, what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that. If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So clearly, Paul had some kind of ongoing eye disorder. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? He says, look, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I am with you. <coughs> My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. And what he's doing here is appealing now to the friendship he has with him. So he's like, these circumcision party guys coming along, getting you all bound up in all these rules and regulations. He says, they're not doing it because they care about you. He says, I've proved that I cared about you. What I've done for you, I've done as a friend, I've done as a brother. He says, these guys, they're just pushing their own agenda. He says, they've got to be in their bonnet. And, and, and you're their victims. And then in verses 21 to 31, he, he uses an allegory of, of one of the Old Testament stories. A true story, because the Old Testament is true, but Paul uses it as an allegory of something. And it's the story of Hagar and Sarah in the Old Testament. Now you'll remember that God had promised Abraham that he was going to have a son, but he was very old, too old to be a father. And his wife, Sarah, was too old to have a son. And yet God had promised them he's going to have a son, Isaac. But you'll remember that what Sarah suggested to him is, look, we're, we're too old for this. God, God can't do this. Let's help him along. And so Sarah gave Abraham her um, maidservant called Hagar. So Hagar was a slave. And, and, and so what happened was Abraham slept with her and she bore him a son called Ishmael. So they were helping God along. Do you see what I mean? But then what happened later on is that um, Sarah bore a son anyway, quite miraculously. So the point is, Ishmael was born of a slave and uh, was man's effort, whereas Isaac was the child of promise and uh, born to Abraham's wife Sarah, miraculous birth, purity of God, and born to a free woman. So Ishmael was a slave, Isaac was a son. So the point is that, that, that Paul pushes this analogy because there's nothing supernatural or miraculous about Ishmael at all. Now Paul applies this analogy and he says, look, Hagar and Ishmael, this slave and her son, man's effort, likens to Mount Sinai, the law. That's where the law was given. The old covenant, present Jerusalem, Israel in the mess it's in now, as it were. And he says, Sarah and Isaac, they represent the Jerusalem above, heaven, everything that's of God the kingdom of God, the new covenant, all right. So what Paul is saying is that Hagar and Ishmael equals slavery. Sarah and Isaac equal freedom. 
And he says, so if you go back into the law, you're like Hagar and Ishmael. It's slavery. But if you stay away from the law and just stick with Jesus, it's Sarah and Isaac. It's freedom. And in actual fact, what God told Abraham was to cast out the slave woman from, from him. And Paul now says, cast out all this legalism. Get rid of it. And of course, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And it was the same in Paul's day. Christians who were legalists were persecuting Christians who weren't. Because the, the circumcision party were persecuting Paul. They wanted to bring everyone into bondage. And so Paul says, look, Abraham was told to get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. He says, Hagar and Ishmael represent the law. Get rid of it. Sarah and Isaac represent your freedom. Stand firm in that freedom, he says. So you must discard adherence to, to the Jewish law as the means of living the Christian life. And he says, it's as simple as that. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, he tells them, stand firm in the freedom you have. He says, don't let anyone take it from you. He says, do not be enslaved by this legalism. He says, if you get circumcised as Gentiles, he says, you're pledging allegiance to the whole law, and he says, you are cutting yourself off from grace and getting out of fellowship with the Lord. And the actual thing he says, you are alienated from Christ, you are fallen away from grace. Not talking about loss of salvation. He says you got completely out of fellowship with Jesus. Because how do you maintain fellowship with Jesus? Through faith and obedience. What these guys were doing, purely in their own effort, they're living under the law. Not drawing on God's strength at all. Because God's strength is not in the law. It's as simple as that. So he says, look, you're alienating yourselves from Jesus. You're falling from grace. He says, get rid of all this legalism. And I'm just going to read verses 5 and 6. He says, but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts <coughs> is faith expressing itself through love. That's how righteousness comes, through faith in Jesus. And in verses 7 to 12, he tells them that they were running well. He says, you were doing okay. And then he tells them what he thinks of the circumcision party. And uh, he, he, says that far, he says that for him, far from being a compromising man-pleaser, as they were saying, he was saying that actually his stand on this gets him into loads of trouble. Because the point was, Paul suffered a heck of a lot at the hands of the Jews because he preached salvation purely by faith. So Paul says, no, I'm not the man-pleaser. They are, in fact. And I just want to read verse 12. This is what Paul thought of the circumcision party. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. That doesn't need any explanation what that means. That was how strongly Paul felt against them. They were believers, but they were bringing other believers into bondage. They were false teachers. They were believers, but they were teaching heresy. They were bringing people into bondage, and Paul stood against them. That's what he thought about them. But in verses 13 to 15, he now turns to the point. He says, look, the fact that you mustn't be into legalism, he says, doesn't mean that you can go into license. He says it doesn't mean that anything goes. It doesn't mean that you can just do what you like or sin, knowing that God's grace, you know, kind of is, uh, you know, going to forgive you. He says, look, the law is summed up. He said, forget all the rules and regulations, but he says the law was summed up as loving your neighbour as yourselves. And he says that applies to us in the new covenant. He says we must do that. There are demands on us in the new covenant. And if you don't meet up, it doesn't mean you won't be saved. It means you'll lose reward. 
But he says, look, we're set free not to do as we please, but we're set free to serve the Lord. And the reason we're free from the law is so that we can be free to live in obedience to Jesus and to serve other people. <coughs> and he says, if you don't do this, he says, you'll devour and destroy each other. Because legalism devours and destroys. It sets people against each other, sets people on witch hunts. Because if I'm a legalist, it means I want you to live how I say. And, and, and that, that tears believers apart. And in verses 16 to 18, he says, look, live by the Spirit, but you do not gratify your sinful nature. So this isn't Paul saying you can do what you like. This isn't Paul saying, oh, no, we, you know, we're, we're not under law. Well, of course not. Okay, we've seen that law makes demands of you that the New Covenant doesn't. But that doesn't mean there are no demands on us. The New Covenant makes demands on us. They're different demands, but they're demands nevertheless. And Paul says one of these demands is that if you live by the Spirit, you must not gratify your sinful nature. He says you can't carry on in sin so that grace may abound. And he says, look, the Holy Spirit actually wars against our sinful natures to stop us getting our own way. So he says the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to stop you getting into license. This is sanctification. Justification, justified never sinned, made right with God, set free from the penalty of sin. We will never go to lake of fire. But now Paul is talking about sanctification. We need to be set free from the power of sin. And the Holy Spirit is there to war with our sinful natures, all the time bringing us to heal, to stop us getting our own way. So Paul says, you know, living under the law is an impossible struggle, can't be done. But he says living in the Spirit is a struggle as well. He says, but that can be done. But he says it's still a struggle, and the Holy Spirit will wrestle with you to stop you getting your own way. And, uh, but he says, but at least, at least it's free from being under the law. He says it may be a struggle. He says, but it's a better struggle. It's totally different. It's better. And uh, in, in verses 19 to 21, he gives a list of uh, the kind of things that the sinful nature comes up with, just so that these believers know what they're not free to do. You know, he, he examples of immolatory, immorality, <laughs> idolatry, <laughs> hatred, rage, all these things. <coughs> A long list of sins that they are not to be involved in. And he says doing those things will actually prevent you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, when he says that if you carry on in these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God, again, he's not talking about loss of salvation. He's talking about living under God's reign. It's sanctification, not justification. It's not being set free from the penalty of sin. This is being set free from the power of sin. For instance, in Acts 14.22, one of the things that the early church was preaching was this, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, they weren't saying that in order to get converted, you must go through much tribulation. Entering the kingdom of God can mean getting converted, but not only that, and here in Acts 14.22, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. That's not talking about getting converted. That's talking about once you're converted, you keep entering the kingdom of God. But if we stay out of fellowship through sin, we're not going to enter the kingdom of God, i.e. we won't be justified. We'll get to the kingdom of God up there, but we'll not really be living in the kingdom of God down here. Now Paul says that, that's crazy. You want to inherit the kingdom of God down here. We can only come into our inheritance the righteousness of Jesus, if we live in obedience to him. And then, of course, what he does, having listed what he called the works of the sinful nature, he, um, he now lists the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? Sin is acts, 
works, whereas uh, godliness is fruit. And it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's God's very nature. Let's just read it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. That's, that's, the, that's the new nature. That's wonderful. We live like that, crumbs. And that's what Jesus is like. And Jesus lives in us. And uh, it's, 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 it's been said, because it says the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say fruits. It's kind of one fruit, but nine flavours. And you put it all together, and it's love. It's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. That's the life we should be living, as opposed to the works of the sinful nature. And the reason that he says that against such things there's no law. Remember, if you go into legalism, there's a million things that you can't do, isn't there? The point about the fruit of the Spirit is you feel free to do them all as much as you like. There's no point where you're overdoing it. You cannot love people too much. You cannot be too gentle. You cannot be too kind. You see, that's why Paul says there's no law against these things. Because we're working on a totally different principle here. A completely different principle. It is the life of Jesus in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul ends chapter 5 by saying, look, we have, after all, crucified the sinful nature. So he says, we're not going to live in that. More and more it's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. And what's interesting, <clears throat> when Paul talks here about crucifying the sinful nature, and it's something he does a lot, this mention is special, it's unique. In all his other writings, when Paul refers to crucifying the sinful nature, he always uses a present ongoing tense always saying it's something we're doing every minute, an ongoing thing. But here, he uses a tense which says it's once and for all it's done, past tense. And, and of course, it's, it's the two, because when you were converted, you actually died then. You see, that's true. But the point is we keep, you know, I'm dead but I won't lie down. We keep coming back to life and, and sinning. And, and, and of course, what Paul is saying, look, our sinful nature has been crucified. So what we've got to do is we've got to keep it down in an ongoing way. But here it's talking about a, a, a once and, and for all things. <coughs> and, and he says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And he says, look, good relationships with each other is what it's all about. Right, now then, we'll just very, very quickly go, go through chapter 6. And uh, here and there I'll... Um, read a verse. First one, he says, Brothers, if someone is called in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted. And, and Paul's here talking about correct correction. It's right sometimes to correct when God leads, but you've got to do it correctly. And, uh, and, and Paul says, if you ever do correct someone, remember how sinful you are as well. Let it be in an attitude of humility, not, not a kind of a finger pointing coming down like a ton of bricks. Uh, because, you know, whatever, whatever that brother or sister's doing that you're correcting them for, you can do it as well. You're not exempt. And uh, in verse 2, he, he says about carrying each other's burdens. And he says, um, in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. You see, the Old Testament was, the, the Old Covenant was the law of Moses, and we're not under that. We're in the New Covenant, and that's the law of Christ, and we are under that law. But it's different, because it doesn't depend on our efforts depends on the life of Jesus within us. We've still got to do our bit, but the power comes from Jesus himself. Under the Old Covenant, the power to obey the Old Covenant came from you. 
in the new covenant, the power to obey it comes from Jesus. Wow, what a difference. Again, to obey the old covenant in your own strength is like trying to get my car to fly. It won't happen. But in the new covenant, to live in obedience to the law of Christ, you've got wings. You see, and that's what changes everything. It's a different design. And in verses 3 to 5, he says, look, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. And he says, we must make sure in our relationships with other people, and in regards to our relationship with ourselves, that we have a correct and humble self-assessment. The problem very often is that we think we're, we're great. Um, and we're not. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean we're rubbish. We're very precious to the Lord. But uh, we, we need to, to have a humble self-assessment because, oh, it's so easy to be blinded to ourselves, isn't it? And uh, this kind of humility that, you know, elsewhere Paul talks about, you know, regarding others more highly than you regard yourself. Putting others first. And, um, you know, he says each one shall test his own actions. We're responsible for assessing ourselves. And every now and then we need to have a good look and think, well, am I... Am I living in a humble attitude? Or am I a little bit, oh, you know, here comes me? And at the end of the day, whether, you know, whether we're extrovert or introvert, we can still in our hearts be doing a here comes me. You know, do you know what I mean? And, uh, well, you know, Paul says we, we need to, to make sure that we're humble. <coughs> and in verse 6, he says, Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. I think you've got to bung that together with what when Paul writes to Timothy talking there about people in full-time ministry. You know, obviously, if you benefit from their ministry and God's called them full-time, and you know, well, okay, then then do your bit, I guess, in a, you know, help helping them in that because at the end of the day, if they if they're not supporting themselves, they can't help you, can they? So it's a bit of a, you know, sort of like a, just a mutual benefit thing there. And uh, verses seven to ten, these are important. He says, look, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. I mean, you can fool me, I can fool you. You can't fool God. He says, a man reaps what he sows. And we will. We will. We're Christians. The Holy Spirit will ensure that we reap what we sow. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. So what Paul is saying there, if you just live to gratify your sinful desires, and me first, you first, okay? Well, I, I there are Christians whose, whose Christian lives are characterized by folly, destruction, no purpose. It's because they're sowing to a sinful nature. Listen to this. But the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. What that means is that you'll get your eternal life, start living it out down here. See, some Christians, they live more like they're non-Christians. They're hardly living in their eternal life. But if we sow to the Spirit, if we put obedience to Jesus, if we put him first, then we can find that we'll actually have the benefits of that. And think of it like this. God wants us to go to heaven on a little bit of heaven. You see? Uh, I've told you before, there's a spider that lives underwater, but it breathes air. And what it does is that every now and then it goes to the surface and it, it gets an air bubble and goes back down to the bottom of the pond and it lives off that air bubble. Now that's what we are. We live off of heaven but on earth. But, but, but lots of Christians, they don't keep, as it were, going up to get that heavenly air bubble. 
they just sow to their sinful natures and get nowhere. Well, you know, but sow to the spirit and, uh, yeah, we'll reap eternal life. We'll go to heaven on a, a little bit of a heaven. And, um, you know, and, and Paul goes on, he says, look, let us not become weary in, in, in doing good. Don't, don't get tired of doing good. Don't ever get tired of following the Lord, even though it's hard, even though sometimes it is wearisome. Keep going. Keep going. And he says, look, at the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. So don't give up. You will reap the harvest. And what is the harvest? Elsewhere, Paul says the harvest is righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. And he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So they're family first. Family comes first. It's only right that Belinda and Bethany are first, you know, they come first to me over anyone else. Now, in the same way, in the church, we're family. So therefore, family comes first. So we do good to all men, of course, unbelievers. It's vital. We do good works to unbelievers and they see Jesus in us. But especially the household of faith. Brothers and sisters always come first. And then Paul says, see what large letters I use to write you with my own hand. You know, so, so Paul probably dictated the letters and someone else, but here he writes, you know, hi, guys, big letters, you know, to say, look, it's, it's, it's me. And then he goes on to say, look, those, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this to is avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. And he says, the truth is it's the circumcision party who are men pleasers. Not me at all. He says, um, you know, they, they, they can't even obey the law they advocate themselves. He says they just want to add numbers to their cause. They're totally unspiritual. And he says, I am going to boast in one thing only, the death of Jesus on the cross. Not the law, nothing like that. My boast is Jesus. And he says, look, I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. That's because of Jesus. And he says... It's not circumcision that matters. It's not uncircumcision. He says, look, it's the new creation that matters. We've got a new nature. Jesus lives in us. That's what matters. Forget about all this stuff about the law. The law is external. He says the new covenant is internal because when Jesus came to live in us, God's law got written on our hearts. It's in us now. It's as simple as that. And, and then he says, look, Christians are the Israel of God. The true Israel of God doesn't mean he's finished with literal Israel. And one day, literal Israel, though unbelieving now, will one day become God's spiritual Israel too. But in the meantime, in the church age, Gentiles are the Israel of God as well. You don't need the Lord to become the Israel of God. We are God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, if so be we follow Jesus and have our faith in him. And then Paul ends off by saying, look, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He says, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He says, the ultimate witness of my apostleship are the scars, the literal scars I've got for how I've been persecuted for Jesus. Of course, the implication is there, the circumcision party didn't have those scars. The final argument, Paul says, you decide who to believe. And then he ends by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So he ends off with grace, as he always does, because salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. It's a free gift. It's as simple as that. And um, we don't need the Jewish law. It's done its job. It was wonderful. But now it's come to an end. And we live under the new covenant, the, the, the law of Christ. Simple as that. Right, we'll finish that.